Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We are in a series at the moment called Popular, Popular Deceptions of Our Day. And our goal in this series is to address some of the most pressing moral and spiritual deceptions that have invaded American culture. And so with that, each week we're addressing one of these. These are deceptions that are misleading people, especially a lot of our young people, junior high, high school, college age. These are deceptions that are damaging marriages, deceptions that are ruining families, and deceptions that are destroying lives. And so each week I've said there's a premise behind this series. Let me put it up on the screen this morning so you can see it. It's something I'm repeating each week. And that premise is this. It is actually an act of love to expose false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. That's an act of love. Because some people think, well, this is kind of a negative thing to do. It's actually not. If people are held bondage by a false worldview and a false religious system, it's actually an act of love to help them get out of it. And so it's an act of love to expose false beliefs and to help wreck false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. That's the premise behind everything we're doing here during this series. The deception we're looking at this morning has got to be one of the most common accusations thrown at the God of the Bible. In fact, in all my reading and study, especially looking at this issue over the years, I think this is probably the number one accusation and deception thrown at the God of the Bible and at people, and there's this that the sheer amount of suffering, misery, and pain on planet Earth is proof that there can't be a loving God. You ever heard that? Have you ever said it? Are you saying that this morning? In an audience this size or the size we had in our first service, it's likely there are some saying, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And if so, glad you're here. It's something that probably confronts every human being and every human being struggles with. But it is another thing to say that that is true, and it is something that is thrown out on a regular basis as an accusation against the God of the Bible, that suffering disproves there's a loving God. In other words, how could, a, how could there be a loving God uh, who is presiding over a world that's filled with cancer and tsunamis and violent earthquakes and birth defects and famine and horrific diseases, and, and, the, and the charges go on. How can a loving God be presiding over all that and not do something, not step in to alleviate the brutality and the misery of millions and millions of people? Richard Dawkins, who is probably the most famous atheist on our planet at the moment, brilliant author, brilliant professor, he's, I think he's emeritus now at, at Oxford, a biologist, He's fascinating to read. I've read a number of Richard Dawkins' books. But he has, a, he has a unique way with words, and he captures this accusation against God this way. As only Richard Dawkins can. Quote, this comes from his book, uh, River of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. The, to the, the total amount of suffering in the natural world is beyond all decent uh, contemplation. So the total amount of suffering in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. Now listen to the rest of this. He is uniquely gifted with words. 
The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Close quote. He said, that's the universe you and I live in. There is no design. There is no good. There's no evil. There's no, there's no direction to it. It's just blackness, despair, and pitiless indifference as we stare into the abyss of atheism. And there's no God. Because, why? The sheer amount of suffering. So with that this morning, we're going to divide our time into two parts and tackle this. It's a little bit of a, a lot of, a lot of bit of a subject to try to tackle in, in 40, 45 minutes, but we are going to do our best. We're going to look at two things. One, the origin of evil and suffering, which is absolutely critical to a Christian world life view. If you want to understand the God of the Bible, if you want to understand biblical Christianity, you have to go to Genesis. There's no other uh, recourse. And then secondly, we'll, we will look at four very encouraging reminders about God and suffering. And I think that these will be an encouragement to all of us because some of us here today are going through some very deep waters. And if you aren't, maybe you just did or it may be around the corner. So first of all, the origin of suffering and death. I want to turn to Genesis because it is absolutely foundational for understanding our planet. Chapter 2, I'm going to read a couple verses from chapter 2 and a couple verses from chapter 3 that set the context for us here. Chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And a few weeks ago, we saw why it's, we have good reasons to take this as literal historical truth and not some kind of myth or primordial saga. But the, these chapters actually describe what took place in space-time history. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. So there was a literal Adam. God put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And he also gave him a wife. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So you have the promise of great blessing, you have the promise of judgment. If you go to chapter 3 for just a second, turn one chapter, chapter 3, we are now told what happened after Adam and Eve did something unspeakably wicked, and that is they rebelled against what God had commanded. To Adam. And we've noted that in the Hebrew, Adam, Adam means man. As you get further into the Genesis narrative, the definite article is dropped and it's used more and more as a proper name. To the man, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. The problem was not clarity. God had been extremely clear. When we disobey God, the problem is not that we don't understand his commandments. Mark Twain used to say, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me so much, it's the parts I do understand. And that's true for all of us. To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So here comes the result of their disobedience. Notice this. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Now notice the biological, physical consequences of their sin. The ground then will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken 
for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So let us know. Young people, please hear this. What's the text say? That suffering, that misery, that biological death, and everything that goes with it, are a direct result of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. That is foundational in a, in a biblical worldview. You can't understand the Bible if you don't understand that. You, you, it's your call whether you're going to believe it, but at least you need to have the integrity to say, well, yeah, that is actually what the Scripture says. And then note the warning, chapter 2, verse 17 again. The warning is you have all this abundance, you can have all of it, just there's one tree, don't touch that one tree. That's exactly what they did. And there's been a lot of objections over the years that, that, that chapter 3, verses 17 and following seem like a, you know, a, 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 a vast overreaction to Adam and Eve's disobedience, that God cursed the entire planet for that. And, and when we argue that way, Here's the problem. It shows we do not understand the holiness of God, and it shows that we do not understand the severity of disobedience and rebellion. That's what it shows. Because there's mercy all over this. You say, where? Well, for number one, chapter 3, in verse 15, in the middle of the curse, because the curse begins further back in chapter 3, Adam and Eve not only didn't die the day they ate, that's mercy. Adam lived another 900 years. As far as we know, those are the same years as we have today. But you have in verse 15 the first promise of a coming Savior. We call this the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first announcement of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. And it comes right in the midst of judgment. You have a promise of the gospel. Verse 15. I will put, now this is God talking to the snake. Beware of talking serpents. This is, we, we, and, and the book of Revelation actually tells us, connects that this is Satan. We're not told that Satan is in this talking serpent, but the book of Revelation connects the dots for us and calls Satan that old wily serpent. So this is God talking to the serpent for what he did. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and hers. He, this is a male descendant coming from the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the first promise of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Right in the middle of judgments, you have mercy displayed. It is a curse spoken by God to the devil, promising a redeemer coming from the woman who would eventually crush the serpent's head. Now, back to our main point for just a second. Nonetheless, even though there's mercy right in the midst of judgment, nevertheless, Adam and Eve's rebellion, we need to note, opened up Pandora's box when it came to judgment on our earth. And it had not just spiritual consequences, I'll mention those in a moment, most of what I'm talking about this morning, though, are the physical, biological consequences it had on our planet. That's, that's the key for the biblical worldview. That's what a lot of Christians forget. So in case you're newer to the Bible or in case this is not as familiar to you, let me just back up and do a real high level here for just a second. The Bible teaches that God created a perfect earth. And you're actually living on it. It's that perfect earth that's under a tremendous curse. All of us underestimate how, how horrific this curse is. But God created a perfect planet, 
And originally there was no death, no biological death. There was no disease. There was no suffering. There was no pain. There was no chaos. There was no misery. Until the day that the first biological man and first biological woman, Adam and Eve, did something that was unspeakably wicked, horrifically evil, and horrendously sinful. What was it? They chose, according to the text, to rebel against their heavenly father. They chose the forbidden fruit. They chose self over creator. And the Bible says because of their deliberate rebellion, God subjected our planet to turmoil, suffering, misery, chaos, and death. In other words, once there was no suffering and pain, and now we live on a planet that is extremely dangerous and very deadly. And it's on display every day, 24-7, 365. Now volcanoes erupt and destroy entire civilizations. Now disease causes untold suffering with hundreds of millions of people. Now rivers overflow their banks and suddenly they wipe out whole cities and regions. Now earthquakes level entire cities and aftershocks kill thousands more. Now monster tornadoes level Midwestern towns. Now famines wipe out whole regions. Typhoid kills, cancer strikes, cholera, and malaria kill tens of thousands. We could go on and on and on. And many people look at all of that and in almost kind of this gut reaction just say, how could a loving God exist? And they forget and they're not looking at what they're seeing is not what God originally created. Some of you know the name Chuck Templeton. If you don't, I'll set the stage real quickly because he has a very interesting quote and I want to read it this morning because he articulates this accusation against God in a very, um, say, prophetic way as an unbeliever, a very articulate way. Chuck Templeton was a very gifted preacher. And back in the 1940s, he was associated and actually in tandem and a buddy of Billy Graham. Now, if you don't know who Billy Graham is, for heaven's sakes, Google it. Not right now. But Google it. No man has preached the gospel to more people in the history of the world than Billy Graham in person. In the 1940s, when he was still kind of on the ascendancy, he and Chuck Templeton, with the ministry called Youth for Christ, were traveling around much of Western Europe and America, preaching at massive rallies. And those that watched the two of them preach, many of them said Chuck Templeton was actually a more gifted preacher. Powerful. When that season of ministry was over, he moved to Toronto, started a church, and it eventually grew to over a thousand. He was an extremely gifted leader, gifted communicator, and a gifted preacher. He chose to go to Princeton Theological Seminary, which is known for its theological liberalism, and eventually, for a number of reasons, he walked away from his creator, he walked away from the faith, he abandoned Christ, and he rejected the gospel. In his last book that he ever wrote, which is called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith, it's a haunting book to read, very haunting. He says this about one of the reasons he rejects the Christian faith, and he spends a lot of time on this in the book, actually. 
and it's the whole argument uh, from suffering. Consider for a moment the millions of children in the third world who are cursed from the day they are born by their sickly bodies, their indifferent parents, and their place of birth. And here comes the coup de grace. The inescapable fact is that a loving God could not possibly be the author of such horrors. Horrors, H-O-R-R-O-R-S. It is obvious there cannot be a loving God, close quote. And he goes on for pages in the book describing the horrific suffering on our planet and then just keeps hammering on this. There can't be a loving God. There is no way there can be a loving God overseeing this disaster we call planet Earth. And he became an atheist and maintained that until he died. He's an old man. The problem with such arguments, ladies and gentlemen, young people, the problem with such arguments is that they assume that our planet and our world right now are exactly the way God originally created it, and yet Genesis is telling that's not true. I want to go to one other passage, call one other gentleman to the uh, witness chair, and that's the Apostle Paul. I encourage you to open to or turn to Romans, Paul's first letter in our New Testament, where Paul, reaching back to Genesis, finishes connecting the dots for us. And again, Genesis and Romans are absolutely critical that we put these two together. The Bible is very clear what we see and experience in this world right now is in terms of suffering and misery and chaos and disease and tragedy is not what God originally created. And all of that came from the result of rebellion and a curse. Uh, Romans chapter 5, first verse 12, where the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that it was Adam's rebellion that unleashed all this. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who's the one man? Adam. Paul believed in a biological first man of the human race, Adam. And then death through sin. Okay, so there's, that's connected us. He made one man. Sin entered the world through the one man, and then what was the result? Death, biological death, and all that goes with it. In this way, death came or spread to all people because all sin. So Paul right there is reaching right back into the early chapters of Genesis. He accepts him as space-time historic truth, and he says that is why we're in the mess we're in. Now, if you go to chapter 8, he finishes the picture here, starting in verse 20. Chapter 8, Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. Paul is very clear here. Our planet is not the way God originally created it. It's under a curse. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. By the way, that's God. God's the one that subjected the creation to frustration and futility in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, there's the law of entropy, that, and brought into freedom the glory of the children of God. Now please note verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Why? It all goes back to Genesis. That's what Paul is saying here. For the present time, the whole creation is under divine curse, According to verse 20, the curse is something God did, not Satan, and it all points back to Genesis. By the way, 
uh, theologians refer to the existence of disease and suffering and tragedies and death here as something called, they call natural evil. Meaning what? Well, natural evil refers to natural disasters like tsunamis, famines, floods, earthquakes, all that. And theologians distinguish natural evil from moral evil. Moral evil are willful acts of evil people against each other. Lying, cheating, adultery, abuse, torture, murder, genocide, and all that. So you have natural evil, moral evil. What Paul is doing is he's telling us in Romans that Adam's rebellion led to both all the natural evil that eventually came and then led to the moral evil that came. One more verse, if you go back to chapter 5, verse 19, we've already noted in verse 12, Paul links biological death, and he may be referring to spiritual death too in, in 12, verse 12, to Adam's rebellion, but in verse 19, Paul is very clear Adam's rebellion, Adam and Eve's rebellion, also led to horrendous spiritual consequences, and that is something we call an inherited sin that every human being born after Adam and Eve were born in corruption and wickedness and depravity. And if you've raised children, you already know that. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. Notice the first part. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, many were made sinners. So his whole point here is Adam and Eve's rebellion resulted in all human beings being infected with sin, depravity, and wickedness. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, Genesis is absolutely foundational absolutely critical for understanding a biblical worldview and explaining the existence of all the suffering, all the disease, all the misery, all the natural evil and all the moral evil on our planet. When thinkers like Voltaire, if you've ever read his classic novel, Candide, very interesting, he wrote it after the 1755 earthquake that leveled much of Lisbon, Portugal, which struck on a Sunday morning killed between 30 and 40,000 people. Voltaire wrote Candide in a, in a humorous sort of way. He was a very witty writer, very brilliant writer, to mock those who believe we live in the best possible of all worlds in light of that earthquake. Despite people like Voltaire who argue there's too much suffering on this planet to believe in God, or people like Darwin who argued the same thing, or Bart Ehrman today, the biblical scholar who's an atheist, or Richard Dawkins, or George Will. Some of you know the name George Will, the brilliant political writer in our day, conservative, older, but he's still writing. He's a, he's a very committed atheist. They argue the sheer amount of suffering, brutality, carnage, violence, and misery on our planet rule out a loving God Here's what they're ignoring and not telling you. They're not telling us and they're forgetting or they're choosing to ignore that the answer is given in Genesis why we live on such a dangerous, violent, deadly planet. And here's the soundbite for the why. The suffering we see, all the natural evil, all the moral evil, the suffering is a result of rebellion. And that's the piece that's often left out. And it's critical to a Christian worldview. Now, secondly, this morning, we're going to shift gears here just a bit. A lot of us here this morning are going through deep water. A lot of us here this morning will be going through deep water. Or we are coming out of going through a season of darkness and pain. 
And at those times, we need regularly to be reminded, what is the Bible's perspective on God and suffering? And so I want to offer four very short treaties here, treatises on the connection between God and suffering. They're not in any particular order, although I would put number one as number one, because I think biblically it probably should precede the others. So here they go. I think you will find these extremely encouraging. And if you're in a season of loneliness, a season of grief, a season of loss, a season of pain, a season of broken relationships, strained marriage, kids that have gone astray, you've lost a job, you've lost a dream, but there's a season of grieving and loss, may these encourage you this morning. I would encourage you to go online and listen to them again and look up the scriptures and meditate on it and chew on it. All right, reminder number one of God's relationship to suffering and evil, and is this. The Bible couldn't be clearer that God is good all the time. All the time. That is indispensable to a biblical worldview. That our God is a loving God, and he is good to the core of his being. No matter what happens in our world, no matter what craziness is going on in Washington, D.C., or any other major city on our planet, our God is a good God. I could summon, uh, I can't say countless, I could summon, uh, you know, hundreds of verses. I'm only going to give you a couple. But these speak so clearly. Psalm 136, 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. And this is something the Old Testament and New Testament scream out over and over and over. Psalm 119, 68. You are good, and what you do is good. So not just saying he's good, but even what he does is good. Even when cancer strikes, even when I'm lied about, even when we lose a child, lose a job, lose a dream, tragedy strikes. We lose somebody we love. God is good. Some of you know I, I'm a little bit addicted to the Puritans. I have a bromance going on with some of those guys back there in the 1600s, you know, these I love John Flavel and Jeremiah Burroughs and Thomas Watson and some of these guys because they have a way of saying some things that although they are, these same things are said today, they're not said as often and it's buried in an avalanche in the Christian publishing world of a lot of junk. And you've got to really dig. In the Puritans, it's, it's there much more obvious. And one of the things the Puritans remind us of when it comes to God and suffering is that we ask the wrong question. I do. I find myself sliding into this even when I know better and I have to preach the gospel to myself. They say we ask, why do we suffer so much? That's the question we camp on. And the Puritans remind us, friends, that that's not the real question. The biblical question is, in light of our rebellion, why is God so good to us? That's a totally different question. It's a totally different perspective, right? Completely different perspective. But that's why I love the Puritans, because they have a way of just taking the Bible and putting it up to our face and going, what does the text say, for heaven's sakes? And the text reminds us, in light of all our rebellion and wickedness, it is amazing how kind and gracious and good God is to us every day. Second reminder about God's relationship to suffering in the world, and that is this. God is wise and all-powerful, and he does not owe us any explanations. 
Explanations may come, they may not. I hear people say, oh, you know, in the next life, we'll, we'll, we'll get the answers to everything. I'm not so sure that's true. And I'm not so sure it'll matter. We will have God as much as we have God in this life. God is wise, he is all-powerful, and he doesn't owe us explanations. The Bible teaches not only is God good, but that he is also all-wise, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Isaiah 40, 18, by whom then will you, with whom will you compare God, and to what image will you liken him? Or Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, listen to this great text. My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. And if you've gone through suffering, <laughs> you know exactly what Isaiah is saying, quoting God saying here. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It doesn't take a whole lot of suffering to know that that's so true, that we often just are absolutely flabbergasted at the ways of God. Now, theologians use the word providence, talking about the ways of God, and it captures the biblical teaching that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and governs all things. The Latin word providio, from which we get our English word, means literally, when you break it down, pro, ahead, vide or video is, means to see. We get our English word video from it. It's to see what's ahead. But providence is more than just advanced knowledge. God does have exhaustible foreknowledge. That's another heresy today that's being thrown out on some Christian publishers. God does not know the future. That's another damnable heresy and a deadly one. But providence is more than God just having advanced knowledge of what's going to happen. In fact, theologians are very clear there's a difference between the foreknowledge of God and the providence of God. God's providence means his sovereign, wise leading and active directing of all things for his glory and all events, everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And friends, that is tonic for weary souls, to know that a good God is all-wise and all-powerful, and that whatever he's doing, no matter how much I'm confused by it, is ultimately being done for my good and his glory. Even when, the, even when the timing of what he's doing results in painful circumstances, results in sorrow and in weeping and heartache and loss, even when I am utterly baffled by the timing of what he's doing and it seems crazy and no explanations are forthcoming. And a classic example of this is Job in the Old Testament. Some of you have seen the book Job, not Job. There's not a classified section in the Old Testament for jobs. It's Job, just Job. It's a long book. It's a fantastic book. It's a very interesting book. But the, here, here, if you're not familiar with the Bible, here's the essence of it. Job was a real man. He really existed, and he's called blameless and upright. And then all of a sudden, a whole series of tragedies hit him. Bam, 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 that would level any of us. He lost his children. He lost his livestock. He lost his servants, his house, his health, his reputation, all at the same time. Who would that not absolutely decimate? And it leads to the rest of the book where three idiots come along and give him all kinds of crazy answers and then start accusing him of stuff. And then there's one more idiot at the end that does the same thing. 
But then, unfortunately, through the book, Job, who was originally called blameless and upright, grows increasingly arrogant towards God and starts firing off accusations at God, demanding answers from God for what's going on. And by the time you get to the end of the book, God does show up. And for four chapters, Job gets God in his face. 77 questions are fired by the Almighty to Job. Like a machine gun, Job is reduced to rubble. Says the only intelligent thing he basically said in the whole book, which is, I've spoken foolishly. Now here's the key. Job never got an answer. Never got an answer from God about the why behind the whole thing. If you read the first two chapters, we're told the why. This was, had to do with something between God and Satan and a, and a bit of a challenge the devil had thrown out to God about causing Job to suffer and see if Job would turn against God. As far as we know, Job was never told that. He was never given an explanation, at least in the book, but here's what he was given. Instead of an answer from God, Job had an encounter with God, and it made all the difference in the world. And that's what some of us here this morning need to remember. We need an encounter with God in the midst of... That's what, that's what brings calm to a Christian heart that's sinking in fear and sorrow and grief. It's not necessarily getting answers. God's people don't live on answers. They live on promises. And Job encountered God. So just to be clear, the reason a true born-again Christian, and I say true born-again Christian, I mean those who have repented, turned from their sin, trusted Christ as Savior. Now, I know not everyone here is a born-again Christian, but if you do know Christ as Savior, the reason you can be so hopeful in the face of a world of natural and moral evil is because there is a good and a wise and an all-powerful God who has his hand on the steering wheel and he's in all the details, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you can be assured that he is working all things for your good and his glory. And that's a tremendous promise. Now, two other encouraging reminders. These are shorter. Three, this one's important. God entered the world of suffering on the cross. God entered into the world of human suffering on the cross. That's at the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is the good news that God entered human suffering by becoming a man, Jesus, who died on the sin, died for sin on, on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus fully took the pain, the cruelty, the suffering and the evil of our world in the form of judgment on him. That's why he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Utter desolation. And it happened as he became the perfect sacrifice and God poured out the full brunt of his fury and wrath on him for sin. And he became sin, we're told. There's no way any of us could understand the the brutality of what took place in that dark moment. But God did physically, literally come into our planet and identified with human suffering on the cross. And lastly, fourth reminder, God will triumph one day over suffering on the new earth. And here's why that's so powerful. Right? The cross not only defeated evil in the past, but it also guarantees a defeat of evil in the future. The Bible teaches the suffering of Jesus will one day lead to the end of all suffering for those who know God. And there is no chapter that paints this better than Revelation 21, where we're told, one day, on the new earth, 
There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. That sounds pretty good to me. How about you? And we need to constantly preach that to ourselves. All right, what's our summons before we go to the Lord's table this morning? And I want to address this to two groups that I know are here this morning. So group number one, if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, if you're not sure you have been reconciled to God through saving faith, if you're not sure you've been born again through repentance and belief in the gospel, or you know you haven't been born again, my first summons from here is directed to you, and it is this. The Bible says that your greatest need is not to be delivered from temporal suffering. It's to be delivered from eternal suffering and judgment in hell. The Bible says that you need to be rescued by God or you will face eternal judgment. And we do that through repentance, turning from our sin and owning our sin and stopping the blame game and then believing the gospel. And the Bible says the only, this is interesting, the Bible says the only way a sinful, wicked human being can even believe that news is if the Holy Spirit persuades them. One of my favorite preachers, as a lot of you know, who has an unusual way of saying things, lived a long time ago, I'm anxious to meet him someday, Charlie, Charles Spurgeon. He preached in London. I want you to hear his description of what the Holy Spirit does and the result when he brings conviction of sin into somebody's life because Spurgeon had an unusual way. He pastored the world's largest church 150 years ago in London, right on Elephant and Castle. The frontis is still there, Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon preached to 6,000 people every Sunday. And he had a way with words. This is just an ordinary sermon he preached. I read his sermons every so often. In March 1874, it was called, kind of an old-fashioned title, The Entreaty of the Holy Ghost. That wouldn't fly in today's publishing market, but nonetheless, that was the title. Listen to this very concise paragraph in how articulate he is describing the effects of the Holy Spirit convicting someone of their sin. This is powerful. Quote, when the Holy Ghost awakens a sinner, they become conscious that they have offended their God. So when the Holy Ghost awakens a sinner, they become suddenly conscious that they have offended their God. They are alarmed. Listen to these words. This is what true salvation looks like. They're alarmed to find themselves in a condition of alienation from God and want to be reconciled. They want assurance that they're really forgiven. Listen to this last phrase. A true awakened sinner pleads, P-L-E-A-D-S, in the present tense and cries mightily for a present salvation, he cries urgently today, today. That's what it looks like when someone comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, how it might look when that person actually gets saved, are there tears, is it done loudly or softly, it's different for everybody, but that does say the same. There is this intense awareness of us being alienated from God, desperate need to be reconciled and forgiven, and a crying out, today, today, I need to be saved. That's what salvation looks like. That's your greatest need. That's the only thing that will deliver you from eternal suffering. Lastly, if you're here and you're already committed to Jesus and you know him and you're a genuine disciple of his, 
Here's my question to you, pastorally. If you're in the midst of deep water right now, pain, suffering, season of grief and loss, are you trusting God with the pain and suffering in your life? Are you rejoicing or murmuring? Some of us have gone through very deep waters. Some of us are going to go through deep waters. I was talking to an individual recently who told me about losing their spouse. And they said, you know, those first months were brutal. But then, this person said to me, I started focusing on the promises of God and it's amazing the joy and peace that came in the, in, in the subsequent months and years. Not right away. It starts coming slowly, but she said it, it made it all the difference in the world when you focus on promises. The Bible reminds us God is good and fully in control of everything, ladies and gentlemen, young people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What sustains, hear this, what sustains true born-again Christians in the face of horrific moral and natural evil is not explanations, but God's promises. God's people live on promises, or they don't live. They, they, they wither and crumble. Psalm 119, 165, I love this verse. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Nothing ultimately can make someone who loves God's law stumble. John 14, 27, my peace I give to you, but not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I've noted many times that is the most repeated command in the Bible. Don't be afraid, spoken to God's people. Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Or once again, Revelation 21, verse 4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel of God. And that is why the biblical worldview has so much hope that is simply not offered in Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam.